0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to Decoding Entrepreneurs, a series of one to one conversations with successful Canadian entrepreneurs, founders, and innovators about their personal journeys and how they achieved success. These are open and wide ranging conversations, providing insights into who they are, the steps they've taken, when and where their entrepreneurial journey started, and why they do what they do. My objective is to share with you not only their journeys and insights, but also decode some of their personal habits, tactics, and routines into actionable insights that you can apply in your own life and your personal journey towards achieving even greater success. I'm Thomas Schmidt, and welcome to Decoding Entrepreneurs. Hello, and welcome, listeners. Thomas Schmidt here. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Decoding Entrepreneurs. My guest today is Nicholas Richenbach, founder and CEO of Flowwater Inc. Nicholas is a Canadian serial entrepreneur and investor who's created and built numerous businesses that have disrupted the status quo across consumer goods, digital distribution, entertainment, hospitality, and social media. He started 11 companies, his first at the age of 17, when he opened a clothing store on the beach in Southampton, Ontario. He soon found himself in the world of music promotion, with what started as a passion for electronic dance music, evolving into an entertainment company spanning 10 years, with Nicholas and his longtime business partner, Billy Melnick promoting concerts, shows, and nightclub venues across North America. By 2001, having sold his businesses, he headed to London, England, to do his master's in international commerce. His path then led him to found, invest in, and operate numerous startups in disruptive new media and mobile technologies, starting with one of the first ringtone publishing companies. Some of the other ventures included Rabbit, a leading social video chat platform backed by Google Ventures, Guest Driven, a leading SaaS startup in hotel guest engagement and ancillary revenue with clients ranging from Thompson Hotels to Charisma Resorts, Magma Games, a mobile social game and app publisher, having produced over 300 games, and BPlay, a direct-to-consumer mobile content storefront. Launching Flow in 2014, he set out to disrupt the water industry, which had remained largely unchanged for years. Nicholas came up with the idea of Flow at Burning Man, where the mantra is, bring what you need and leave the earth untouched. Yet he found this juxtaposed against the heaping mountain of plastic balls being trucked out at the end of the week. He thought there had to be a better way, and that's when the idea for Flow started percolating. Earlier this year, Flow Alkaline Spring Water raised $45 million in a funding round, with many famous entertainment and celebrity investors, including singer Post Malone, former baseball player Chase Utley, singer Shawn Mendes and his manager, Andrew Gertler, and artist managers Austin Rosen and Dave Holmes. Private equity firm Gutenberg Gordon Investments also participated in the funding round. Flow is aiming to sell more than 100 million units this year, and has seen 250% year-over-year growth. It's sold in 25,000 stores globally, and the brand is hoping to have a consumer base of $20 million by 2021. With that, please join me in my wide-ranging conversation with Nicholas Richenbach. All right, Nicholas, so, listen, thank you very much for doing this. Um, uh, for the audience, uh, Nicholas and I have known each other for some years. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. too long, too long. So, Nicholas, I'm going to start off with uh, maybe first asking you, when someone asks you, what do you do, how do you answer it? Uh,
1: what do I do? I create companies. Business-wise, that's what I do. I do lots of stuff, but for you know, business my career, I'm a career, you know, serial entrepreneur, creating companies and building them, and finding them a good home afterwards, and building teams, and creating products, and creating brands. You've you've created eleven companies, correct? This is my eleventh, yeah. And and but you started very
0: young, right? As I remember, you you were what uh, seven? No, seven or thirteen? Yeah. I so
1: uh, I acquired my first paper route. I bought. Yeah. My parents bought it um, for me when I was, uh, oh, it, yeah, I'd be about eight or nine years old. Who's, whose idea was this, yours or your parents? Uh, my, my idea. Uh, <laughs> okay. our, babysitter, our babysitter owned the paper route. Okay. He was going into high school. Um, and so so I said, well, why don't I buy the paper route? And so my mom put the money up for the paper route, which was the Toronto Star. And um, it had only 70 70 people getting it in a town of 1,000 people. That's, that's a good market share. So uh, at first iteration, I had a bike I had a bike, and I bought a wagon for the back of it. And I started <laughs> delivering this. And then I started uh, figuring out that um, I could actually get more people subscribed to it. So I went around selling it and built it up to about 150 people. Uh, so double double the business within a very short time period, and I, and and at those times you could sell a year's subscription. So and it would be at a discount. So you could buy a weekly, monthly, or a year. And so I actually had to start managing my own money. And that was the most difficult part because I ended up spending all the year's subscription because I didn't have to pay anybody. Right. Uh, But then every time the guy would come around every month and he'd be looking for his money, eventually after two years of selling the future, I, I was like, oh my God, I'm out of money. And at that point, I think I was 10, 10 or 11 years old. And so the competitor, which is actually the Kitchener record it's the kitchener waterloo record but i think it's just called the kitchener record they they actually had a larger market share in my small small town of a, a thousand people and one of my friends was the delivery person for it so i ended up buying the route from him because why bother going around to the same houses twice and i planned out a route bought a atv a Forerunner, uh and a snowmobile and i attached the back of it to a uh a sh- uh, a trailer that actually held all the papers. And we, I ended up myself at six o'clock every morning, you know, maybe a few times the weather got to us. Yep. I had to go around in a truck, but very rarely, cause I had a ATV for the summer and a, it's a YM80. So a small little vehicle. Right. And I had a, a snowmobile, which was like a Tundra small engine vehicle that could hold very light. Anyways, long story short, uh, I had over 300 papers. So 30% hmm. of the town were getting my papers. And uh, I managed to buy my my way out of poor money management in the Toronto Star, move it into a consolidation. And uh, then when I went to high school, when I was 13, I ended up selling both of the paper routes. That was my first business. That's crazy.
0: Imagine doing that today. I mean, (laughs) with all the safety, right?
1: You know, know, it's like uh, back then. Uh, we could, I didn't even have a driver's license, but you didn't need one. And their town, the town was like, it's a sleepy town. It's, a, it's an old town, thousand people. So for rural town, everyone knew my name. And, uh, you know, nowadays, uh, actually, it's a job. People, you know, it's not, it's not. For not the kids doing it not right Kids doing it anymore yeah. i think i was one of the last generation i remember selling it to a, a person that's uh, much older than i was and uh yeah that was the first that was my first business
0: what was what was the impetus for you even going down this route was it did you just think it was a cool idea or did you want some pocket money like what was the driver for you to even get into this
1: i was, I was born a business entrepreneur it was it's in my dna my grandfather was a business entrepreneur it go, going back to um because i'm swiss german going back even uh two or three hundred years of our history on my uh father's side we've all been merchants so it's in your dna basically yes, it, it's it's, yeah. it's i love to sell things and i love to make people happy uh and if i can make people happy and sell things and make money that's my mecca
0: what what would you say was the hardest part or uh, hardest part about uh, sort of well running that sort of little company at the time?
1: Money management. <laughs> it's kind of funny because I'm relatively the same type of person today. But, um, you know, that was the hardest thing was uh, counting, figuring out how to account for my stuff. And it was obviously not the funnest thing um, and involved your mind and yeah. uh, figuring out. Yeah. You know, so after that, I decided to take my first job. And work for my parents at their law firm, and the one thing that my mother and I used to love do love to do on the weekends is reconcile the books. So she taught me all about the accounting of business, and so throughout high school, I would work there during the school year to reconcile, do all the accounting, reconcile the books, and be a legal assistant for my uh, for my parents and for the other lawyers that were in their firm. And uh, and then on the weekends I'd pull double shifts uh, and work at a fishing tackle shop. So
0: this was your. So I was going to ask my follow-up question. So what was your high school year? What were your high school years like? What 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 kind of a kid were you? Oh, very 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 popular,
1: outgoing socialite. I I can't imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much sum up. You know how I was how I was in high school, but I also like to work um and so i you know and even in my high school i won the entrepreneurial award for the best business plan in grade uh, 11 and 12. i also in the summer had a place on the lake lake huron and i remember like as soon as i got out of school uh, the most exciting part of the summer to me was to work two jobs and i worked one job in port elgin during the day from eight o'clock in the morning till six and then I took, drove my bike because I was 14 to 15, 16 years old. And I drove, well, 14 and 15, I drove my bike from Port Elgin to Southampton. And I worked scooping ice cream at the general store from 7 until 11. And then I woke up the next day and did it. I literally just loved to work and socialize. Um, and that was my thing. You know, that's all I did. Do you think the environment played into that at all? Like, I mean, growing up in a small town
0: uh, sort of supported that? Or do you think just that wouldn't have mattered where wherever you would have been?
1: No, my, my doctor, who's a family friend, he said it best, he's like, either Nicholas is gonna end up a multi-millionaire or in prison. <laughs> he's like, I don't know which one's gonna be. He said, but to my mother, she said, but your boys, my brother and myself, said, they're certainly not from around here. Well, we were always a little more cosmopolitan because of my parents and our upbringing, and we are always worldly schooled from day one you know, my grade eight, my grade eight class trip, I was the only person that had ever been to Toronto. And I, and we used to go every month to go to the theater. So, so it was always in my DNA. And then that matched with the business and my global aspirations in life. It it was there from day one. You, You talked about your family being entrepreneurs. What did your parents do? The lawyer. My father's a lawyer. Uh, my mother was a teacher, both university educated for that time at the University of Ottawa. Yeah. And uh, my mother uh, became uh, left the teaching and went and became a legal the legal assistant. Uh, actually paralegal. Sorry. Um, and worked with my father for the rest of her career. But my father started numerous businesses, including one of the first bottled water companies in the, in the world, in, definitely in Canada, called Formosa Springs. He was a little bit of an entrepreneur, but he's, he's more of a, a lawyer. Um, but, he, but he always dabbled and was very good in, uh, in business. And my mother was uh, impeccable in business and accounting and all that stuff. But prior to that, a long family history in real estate, farming, banking, and jewelry. jewelry old jewelry my grandfather ran a very large jewelry business and and during the great depression made a lot of money selling gold and buying gold and reselling jewels and all that stuff
0: Hmm. when you think of the word successful uh, who's the first person that comes to mind and and why
1: what's funny I was just talking about my grandfather so that's the first person that came in mind but um yeah he was he was very successful uh and so was my grandmother. They were both very successful uh, businessmen, business people. And they were definitely, you know, the talk of the town in the sense of um, their success and establishment on uh, the community. Right. I guess it started from a, from an earlier on, but both my parents were successful as well and in, in their own right. So I had great teachers around me from day one. How,
0: how do you define success is it uh, monetary is it other uh, like what's your definition
1: or how do you, you know, know it's funny and most people think success is monetary but success is just are are you happy are you having a positive impact on the planet and uh, are you making other people happy that's success to me that has nothing to do with money no agreed
0: um what habits or skills do you think are the most uh, important to living
1: a successful uh, life you've got to be passionate yeah, I think you know. I think you can be successful doing anything, but if it doesn't make you happy and you're not passionate about it, why are you doing it? You know. So I think the biggest the biggest factor to success is being passionate about what you do. Whether whether that's cleaning eaves troughs or delivering papers or building buildings or packaging water.
0: Would you say? I mean. What would you say? But uh, if you look at it, so passion and hard work uh, of itself does not always guarantee success, right? Uh, There are plenty of truly hardworking people and entrepreneurs whose businesses fail. Um, To what other factors uh, besides hard work do you think or would you attribute um, massive success uh, in business? Failures.
1: (laughs) (laughs) If you haven't had an epic failure before, success is never appreciated, Right.
0: No, it's true. And, and of course, we all learn from failures, right? And, oh, yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> hopefully you learn from failure, right? One would hope. You know, there's also luck, right? I mean, there's a certain amount of luck. There's also timing, right? When you look at uh, Flow, for instance, right, your latest venture, um, what do you think is sort of behind, other than your passion and, and uh, your hard work, what do you think has uh, helped you in, in the success?
1: Yeah, so uh, those two things are definitely the the top. Like, F- flow would not be successful without my passion and drive uh, forward. It was just too much of an uphill battle mm-hmm. to be the first company in the you know in the world to launch a premium mineral water in an eco friendly pack to go up against Coca Cola, Pepsi, Nestle, Avion, Fiji. So, so that was definitely you know my passion and hard work are definitely the two things that drove the success of Flow forward yep. initially. And the other things that brought it together were definitely a, a, a lot of serendipity and luck at the same time as a lot of creative energies coming together, including my wife, Tammy, who created the brand itself. A lot of creative energies coming together uh, around a, a very specific change in human c- human behavior that actually opened up the opportunity for flow. So it was about identifying the opportunity, the gap in the market that needed to be filled. I call that disruption, the path yep. of disruption. Yep. And then pushing it forward with a lot of creative energy uh, a lot of brand alignment with a consumer a targeted consumer uh, and a lot of hard work and passion and dedication to be able to get it there so first and foremost we had an amazing product and then we had then we developed an amazing team to bring it to market so those two things just really drove the business forward so going back to just how you got there when you were 17
0: you started your well i guess your first serious business right and you went out and borrowed some money as a
1: Fifteen hundred bucks from the Royal Bank. Right, had a visa for eight eight hundred dollars from CIBC. And this was a clothing store, right? That you yeah. Started? Yeah, it's called Rave New
0: World. <laughs> what was uh, what was the uh, impetus for that?
1: Well, so um, at an early age, when I was yep. sixteen, my brother went to the University of British Columbia for uh, for chemistry and pharmacy. Um, so he's a biochemist, and. Um, uh, he brought back uh, when I was 16 years old a cassette that had electronic dance music on it. I, we had been listening listening to Chris Shepard's Pirate Radio in oh Toronto, yep. uh, listening to dance music and uh, RPM on a, on a on a on a Saturday night, um, and so we were really you know uh, enthralled and 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 passionate about dance music. And so when he brought back the first European dance music, I fell in love with it when I was 16 and uh, it spawned a uh, a 22 year, almost a 30 year business uh, for myself in electronic dance music. So uh, my first business was rave new world and I sold rave tickets to and organized bus tours to raves in Toronto uh, from my beach town in Port Elgin and Southampton. Um, And then I also sold rave gear as well as uh, sunglasses and beach gear, So I opened it up for the summer and it was my, I wrote a business plan, uh, got a government supported grant from RBC for $1,500, put my own money into it, which I think I only had saved about a couple thousand dollars, which I should have saved way more, but I didn't. And then um, I maxed out my credit card. We opened up the shop, went to Kesington Market in Toronto and bought all the clothes off of the street vendors at wholesale prices. Went back, started selling them, organized bus tours and started making money organizing bus tours to big concerts in Toronto. And then when uh, and then I went to Fanshawe College when I was 18 in business, business administration, business commerce marketing and shut the location down. Um, I think I made about $500 a week profit. But if you looked at what I would have made if I had just got an hourly wage, I probably lost money. But uh, but, it, but it was still fun. It was great. And this was, was it a more of a passion thing?
0: Like when I mean, you got excited about the music and it sort of drove you in that direction or as opposed to just?
1: I just want I wanted to start a business. Yeah, I wanted to start a business around this beautiful music and culture. And then when I went to university, I started immediately uh, promoting uh, and supporting promoters and doing the same thing I was doing. And then eventually uh, we started throwing our own shows, financing other people's shows. And uh, that grew into my first nightclub empire and concert promotion company that I ran from uh, the age of 20 to 28 when we sold the company um and we built it to 70 employees and we're throwing 600 concerts a year wow. and we had offices in new york toronto vancouver and ottawa so the big question. So, so what's burned? Was it
0: just basically you setting up that initial store, and then sort of it just started to bubble across different little <laughs> tentacles? Like, I think it's important
1: just so people would understand. You know, like they're following the thread of the culture and right. surrounding where, where I could support the movement of. It's called EDM now, but it was just called dance music. Oh, yeah. But um, I, I just started supporting the ecosystem and I was in the ecosystem. I was going to the events every week and all my friends were. And we just started supporting and making money off of that and becoming the kind of lead people bringing music into, bringing music and culture into Canada and eventually into the United States, uh, which was largely a European trend that we took advantage of. And then during that time, I became the first Red Bull distributor in North America. So we started bringing in Red Bull into the country uh, via Thailand and port of entry in Vancouver and started ordering container loads from the Thai family that owned Red Bull before Klaus and the company Red Bull Austria, which had a, had a licensing agreement, sim- not similar to ours, a little more serious than ours. It was exclusive. It was for Europe. And he started building it out. And then my partner and I ended up shutting that business down in the year 2000 and focusing on the sale of our business in 2001.
0: Wow. Wow. And how did you how did you even find out about was Red Bull sort of in the culture or like how did you even get a wind of that before it became what it is today? Yeah. So in,
1: in, in 1994, one of my business partners and I went over to Europe to um, do talent scouting uh, with some of the talent that we we're bringing in. I remember it was called the Love Dub Brothers in Manchester, England, and we stayed over at his house. Uh, we went and saw Paul Oakenfold at this conference. Club called Cream, and we tried, cool. Bull, we tried Red Bull for the first time. I was like, "Oh my God, this is incredible!" An energy drink in a nightclub. Let's bring it back to all of our shows. At that time, we were selling a product called Liquid Energy, uh, one that we were manufacturing ourselves. So I was in the beverage space in in two thousand nineteen ninety three. I started manufacturing liquid energy and then we brought Red Bull in for the first time and sold that successfully for about ten ten years. Amazing. And and so if I
0: have this correctly, but by around two thousand one you start to you, you left those businesses and move into tech, right?
1: Uh yeah, exactly. After the, the sale of the company, uh we ended up shutting it down the management team the owner the owner at the time after september 11th uh concert promotion went through a very turmoil period um and they ended up shutting the the electronic music division down that was kind of a bittersweet for, for myself. And uh, and then I decided, because we were writing music and MP3s and a couple of our advisors and shareholders of the company were Sean Fanning and Sean Parker, the, the, the creators of Napster at the time. And another guy named Sam Mahat, who was one of the kernel developer for VA Linux, the Linux platform. He's also one of the chief architectures of Android right now. Uh, We ended up uh, learning a lot about MP3 compression, music communities and where that direction was going. And uh, so I decided to take an intelligent pause in my business career uh, when moved over to London, England and started doing my MBA. In international commerce at the University of Liverpool and uh, it didn't take me very long to uh, start another company literally three months when I was over there and I started one of the first ringtone music licensing platforms that allowed for the delivery and the licensing of ringtones to all the major carriers in Europe and and so I followed the thread of music and took all my music knowledge knowledge and put it into technology. And I remember one of my business partners prior to that, who had a a bit more experience in technology. And um, he had said, Nick, what, what the hell are you, how, how are you going to build a technology platform and a website? I'm like, I'll figure it out. I'm going to figure it out. Okay. So I, I literally went in and, and Thomas, you'll appreciate this because of our experience together. I went in and built my first product prototype um, and workflows, UI, UX, UF, user yep. interface, user flow and user experience. And I did it with a local Ottawa company and this guy, Brett Tackleberry um, from 76 Design. Yep. And, and Brett and I, Brett moved over to England, uh, stayed in my apartment with me and we basically like architected the first ringtone delivery platform and music delivery platform for mp3 files. We're literally going into the vaults of Warner Chapel, like vaults, like a bank. Right. Taking out dots which are like that recordings that they have of old music, like that they they only have one copy or two copies of. And we were digitizing the files into waves, compressing them and splicing them into MP3, meta tagging them 20 or 30 times with different things, pieces of information, uploading them into a portal and allowing for the portal to deliver based on search requirements, Meta tag, metadata, but also in, intuitive, like m- having music listening, like calm, energetic. So there were meta tags based on just data, uh, right. who owned the files and all that stuff. But then also it allowed for, you know, MTV or Motorola or uh, all the European carriers. Uh, to go on and actually find music for their uh, ringtones. And eventually we just started selling ringtones and delivering them directly to uh, the operators and, and music files directly to people that wanted to license them for different use. It was an incredible platform at the time. And my partner that uh, that founded the company uh, really was a music licensing expert. And then I brought on and basically undermined it the entire tech platform with her and Brett Tacoberry, and we built the entire thing out. It was awesome. Well, I remember that, I mean, those days, ringtones were it, right? But you guys were like the first ones on the, the scene with this, right? Yeah, well, first one that, that did MP3s, yeah. We didn't do the first monitor, like there's there's one before that that were called MIDI samplers. Mm-hmm. The one that went ding, 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 ding. But we actually put the first audio files on a phone with MTV and Motorola. First ones, launched it out on a, a, pre, a preload, because we couldn't deliver the file, uh, a preloaded phone. And sold it and sold it across uh, Europe and Asia.
0: And your access to getting to like to getting to Warner and and was this because you had you brought people on that had those connections or? Yeah. how
1: did you? Yeah, my business partner uh, right. Cordelia. She um she had very amazing. Uh, contacts within the music world Um, she had created licensing and did music production and video production uh, for some of the world's largest artists so she was really the gateway into all the major labels I came in and built the platform uh, that delivered it and we built one of the first music delivery platforms for digital content on phones so it was it was really a great it was a great experience for us so for, if I look at sort of some of the
0: history of you and your, the companies that you've worked on, um, you've kind of found these uh, white spaces, right? In certain Always. Areas, right. And that's really kind of the the ongoing theme is to be able to find white spaces. Is it just innate sort of something that you have in you? I mean, how, is there a thought process to go and identify these white spaces? Because, you know, it's one thing to say, yeah, you know, just find a void in the marketplace, <laughs> something that's not being serviced. but not everybody has that ability. Is it, do you think it's an innate thing or is
1: there a process around that? Well, you, you can you can make a process around it now. It's, uh, there's a lot of great books written by Harvard uh, professors on uh, the path to dis- disruption. And uh, I'll reference it and send it over to you after. Okay, if you can great. Put it in. But uh, there's a couple very good books uh, written about it now, and it is a process. But initially, it was more or less like I wanted this thing to happen, and I saw that it was going to happen. Uh, I remember there was a a conference, Billboard, which is the charting music organization in in the U.S. Billboard had a conference about the future of music. And I had one of the first Motorola StarTech phones, and I was in New York um, with my StarTech. And they're talking about, at that time, what it meant to have Napster and an MP3 on a computer. And I looked at it, I was like, I looked at my phone, I said, these things are going to be the next Walkmans. Like, no one's going to be, li- everyone's going to be listening to MP3s on their phone. No, no, everyone, no, no, you can't do that. Uh, <laughs> of course you can. That's exactly what happened, right? Yeah. You think, you know, you see uh, a white space because the market's not move, moving fast enough that you can actually see where consumer intent to purchase or use is going to happen, but no one can do it fast enough, and that le- because companies are too big and they move too slow, and the the the, the innovation cycle is too long, and so this R and D research and development period is where all disruption happens whether it's internal to a big company or market driven by entrepreneurs it always happens and so that path to disruption leads to a lot of innovation ultimately uh new products into market and i've just been always focused on that path that disruptive path with all my products and services doesn't matter which one i've done i've always seen the path forward I've never been a traditional business person where I'm looking at nuts and bolts. I've always looked at, uh, at this innovation cycle. Yeah. Do you think that's also because a lot of these companies have you
0: what's know, called a baggage, right? Which is they have in a, a series of products, right, that they're straddled with, and it's very difficult for them to move off it. And sometimes it also comes down to arrogance, right? Yeah. You know, think about, you know, as an example, uh, if you look at Apple and BlackBerry, when you talk about phones, for instance, right? or others that have been in that space. They had market dominance. You know, we took talk about Motorola and StarTech that had market dominance. Where are they today, right? Look at BlackBerry
1: that had market dominance. Where are they today? One bad move, right? Doesn't matter how big you are, one or two bad moves, you're out of the game. That's, right. how, that's how serious business is. Uh, it's, a, it's amazing. Cause you know, Thomas, you and I have been in mobile technology now for 25 years. Yep. Um, To see four generations of uh, different companies coming in and out of wireless, it's just fascinating, you know, the biggest fall fast. And if they don't embrace uh, consumer intent, and consumer intent to purchase consumer intent to use their history fast. So, you know, the new paradigm is no matter what you do, whether you sell water, you make food products, you need to make products for consumers and you need to follow your consumer through their path, their life path and the journey. Yep, their journey. It's not your journey. It's their journey. And you got to make sure that you're you're satisfying innovation with what they intend to purchase next or what they want. Yeah, that's the biggest mistake. Companies don't talk to their customers, right? Well, they don't. And they, <laughs> right? they don't know their customers. And the closer you are to your customers, the better chance you have to succeed and grow with them. Yeah. And guess what? Customers will give you all the answers, right? They usually do. Yeah. They'll tell you exactly what they don't, they don't want. They want. We, we constantly listen to our consumers. We do consumer insight uh, every six months. Yep. So how long how long did you stay in England for? I lived in England for two and a half years, yeah, and then I moved to Sweden and started one of the first uh, mobile provisioning platforms and mobile content storefronts. So we developed the first generation of app stores, and we did that for two and a half years in Sweden. Uh, I focused on mobile gaming, but we also delivered ringtones and themes. Why, why Sweden? Was it because of a certain phone uh, (laughs) Uh, company? Story goes, uh, uh, a friend of mine uh, who we met when I was selling ringtones, uh, Thomas Lindgren um, had a company called Game Federation that developed the first mobile generation, multiplayer provisioning technology. And we met and then when I left England, after exiting our ringtone company, he said, well, you know, would you consider moving to Sweden and working with me on uh, developing the first generation of mobile app stores? You know, he said, well, play me a game of pool. And if you lose, you're coming. (laughs) That was the reason. (laughs) I moved to Sweden and um, I was doing stuff there that I never dreamed that I would ever be doing. I wrote my first white paper bef- when I was uh, when I was in Sweden, and you know, from an entrepreneur perspective, writing a white paper on technology, uh, it, there couldn't have been further apart from my skill set. But I, I adapted myself to the situation and I immersed myself into. You know, being at the forefront of developing the latest technology for mobile technology, integrating with you know tier one operators and 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 technology that de- didn't even work at the time, and uh, going through this process, that was a very valuable valuable lesson for me. And I thank Thomas and uh, the entire uh, Swedish uh, team I was on and culture that I learned about how to develop software with you know a very iterative design process uh collaborative group work settings um very advanced work environment that they had in sweden Still
0: yeah so I'm, I'm guessing that you know exposure to these other uh, places and cultures outside of canada was was also helpful and oh, informative yeah
1: right. huge huge now now that you're now that i'm thinking about it i mean the way that i learned about how to be uh successful in software uh, and consumer was was taught to me you know mainly by the Swedish software development community uh, which really was if you think about it uh, about one one or two generations ahead of us on mobile so Japan and Sweden Scandinavia were tied for the for 3G uh, before even text messaging was in Canada or in the US no one was even doing SMS uh, let alone HTTP connections on phones. So we were doing HTTP connections on phones in 2002 and 3 and 4 and 5, and text messaging didn't even get into North America in t- until 2005. Yeah, they were way Blackberry, ahead. BlackBerry actually brought it in more or less uh, through, um, through the BlackBerry devices, not even Using text messaging, then it slowly started going into feature phones. Anyways, long story short, I learned a lot from uh, being in Europe and studying and doing my MBA and my thesis uh, in Europe and working with the European development community and business community to, you know, form a very advanced version of of my I guess my ongoing business thesis of how I do things. Yep, and.
0: And, and so then you worked your way back to, well, did you go straight to back to Canada or did you go to, I know you, at some point you ended up in, uh, the valley and, in, um, in California, right? Oh, that,
1: that was way later. So when I returned to, uh, Canada, I went to Ottawa and partnered with, uh, Magmec, which was a, a small developer of Blackberry games. And I came on as an executive and a shareholder to that company. And my project was to build out the first North American global app store for smartphones on the blackberry platform it was called bplay and we built that platform out from scratch with john Criswick and my partner joshua uh, at magmic and we built the largest app store in the world uh, for the years to come before the iphone existed or android existed um conducting tens of millions of transactions a month for the entire blackberry community putting the first games on their phones ringtones on their phones videos on their phones themes on their phones and that was a hell of a project super fun uh and that's my first chop at digital content subscription engagement at a retail level so Mm -hmm. we consider that like direct to consumer retail. And before we were building out platforms in Europe for other, other operators to do marketing to uh, consumers. So they were mainly B2B platforms, but we did lots of uh, engagement tools, but this was my first D2C massive portal that we had 1.6 million customers and we built it from scratch. I think our first data dump uh, was ten less than ten thousand emails from existing consumers that bought BlackBerry games from us, and then we built it up to one point six million customers in less than a year. And it was it was fast. It was fascinating. We built very successful business together, and we still have it today. Yeah, well, I still remember Skippo Junior. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and all the great content. And- Um, So that was a super fun project that got my first, you know, that's when I got back into Canada. Then I moved to New York, got married and started uh, working with guest driven and yourself on something that I was very passionate about, which was um, social CRM tools and engagement tools for the hospitality industry. We built that company and sold it and it was great. Uh, yep. fun ride. And we learned so much together about, you know, just the new, new about how to engage consumers and how to scale it and, you know, SaaS business models and transactions. But at the heart of it, it was a, a digital platform that, that was an engagement tool for consumers to engage their experiences at their hotels. So we just took all, not net sum of all that. And uh, that was an exciting time. And then, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. that's when I moved to the Valley. I founded a company, video chat company that advanced video chat software like this software, but using multiple video chats called Rabbit. I sold that company, moved to Silicon Valley and developed the next generation of video chats together with all of our partners. And uh, then I ended up selling the rest of my company to the current shareholders and a couple of venture capitalists that came in and I started Flow.
0: <laughs> well, hang on a second. Somewhere in between there <laughs> was Burning Man. That was it. That was <laughs> that was yeah. that was the spark, right? But did you? No, actually, I wish I had known that you had gone to Burning Man. I would have gone with you. But right? <laughs> yeah, no, serious. Uh, but uh, were you? Had you been going for a while, or was it really only once you moved to uh, the valley? Oh, I was,
1: so uh, some some good friends of mine. In fact, my roommate in England uh, when I first moved there, Alex Clive. A very innovative gentleman, always at the forefront of everything. An inventor, really. An incredible inventor uh, and gentleman. He's the guy who actually brought electronic dance music into North America back in 1985. Anyways, long story short, Alex invited me to be in his camp uh, together with a couple of other people, Michael and Zoshi Birch, and we went to Burning Man together. They brought me to Burning Man, and that was my kind of year of discovery and you know i guess i had i had my epiphany um knowing that i wanted to move away from the uh the the company and create my next venture uh together i got inspired to change the world and eliminate you know single-use plastic bottles bring in an environmentally superior friendly and then really bring it back home to my hometown where i grew up Uh, where we actually grew up on a very large artesian spring that's been in my family for five generations. My father never wanted to commercially develop it after he put building and selling one of the first bottled water companies. Um, And then I sent him an email. I think I still have it today, which is, you know, what kind of legacy do we want to leave on the planet? Let's have a positive one. Let's do, you know, let's, let's have a positive impact on the planet. Let's commercially develop the spring, change the way that people consume products remove plastic from the environment and leave a positive change.
0: (laughs) No, I still remember, you know, looking at some of the early, uh, uh, packaging, uh, mockups that you, I think you were just developing it, um, at the time in terms of flow, what do you think has driven really the success? Why has it been so, uh, embraced? I mean, you guys have, have grown exponentially. Um, the market has really received it well. you're getting lots of traction. What do you think is behind that? Because there, you're not like the only water on the on the shelf, so to speak, right? It's a highly competitive market, right? Yep. Yeah. It's very, very, very difficult to get shelf space, right? Yeah. How do you, how do you, is it, is it just simply, be, I mean, maybe you can talk to it a little bit, right? I mean, I know there's lots of good things around it, but uh, just give me a little bit of insight. Why you think it's
1: so on the way? So one, has one of the, one of a fellow entrepreneur in the beverage space, he just texted me. He said, My kids are obsessed with flow. My son wants to hang out. He wants to hang out and drink flow. It's hard to get them to drink any other water. Right? So I can say that initially, Thomas, it was all about the environmental package. Yep. Then I got the water tested for its mineral properties and alkalinity. Yep. And this is complete serendipity. Complete. It turned out to be the highest quality naturally occurring alkaline mineral water on the market. And the taste of flow is superior to all other premium waters, including Avion and Fiji. I knew it was a good drinking water. I knew it was a beautiful spring water. I knew it had a similar composition taste composition to Avion because I drink Avion when I don't drink a flow because it reminds me of flow. Right. But I had no idea there was going to be a higher quality mineral spring water to Avion or Fiji or any other water on the market. And that became the cornerstone to Flow's success because we, we got them into the first purchase with the package being the most environmentally friendlier. But then the alkaline properties of it for your health, the electrolyte compositions for your health, plus the taste of it. Really got the repeat purchases of Flow up to the highest growth rate in all of North America. We are the fastest growing premium mineral water in North America by all third party data. We grow 300% year over year in revenue and 250% in same store sales growth. So people are buying and buying more because once you start drinking Flow, You realize that it is a superior tasting water with functional health benefits and and it's got the eco friendly pack on top of it. So it's the trifecta. And we had no idea what we had. But as soon as we knew what we had, we started marketing it to the consumer that understood the properties. And so once we had product market fit with the wellness consumer, we just dove deep into the flow. Seventy five percent of our 10 million customers are female um, and they're the wellness woman. Uh, And then, you know, 25% arguably are their husbands and kids, right? So we dominate that space. And because of the value proposition of being the highest quality, still alkaline mineral water naturally occurring out of a spring with an eco-friendly pack and a lifestyle brand around health and wellness, you know, and now we even have beauty with our collagen water. It seems to be, it's almost like built a viral following in a sense, right? It's built a a dedicated brand following a, a loyalist following I wouldn't even call it viral uh, it's it, it's viral in the sense that p- people find out about it through recommendations uh, influencers like I could you would be floored with the people that drink flow like Obama drinks flow Bill Gates drinks flow he buys it right to his house yeah no no I saw I remember I said mean, you that <laughs> I mean, it's like wow uh, uh, Justin Bieber, Sean Mendez, who's a shareholder. No, I see it. I oh, see it. I
0: uh, yeah, no, I see it everywhere, and and uh, especially in social media and other, you know, uh, anywhere you and see Kardashian
1: drinks flow. It's, yeah, it's, no, it's, it it's become where it is because the quality of the product and the product market fit in our direction, and we just we lean into that customer, and now we're our whole brand is about that customer, and our brand values in line with our customer in their wellness journey. And our mission is to create products to inspire the world's wellness through the power of water.
0: Right. And so you guys have also recently uh, expanded beyond in terms of the source, right? So the source is your family. Do you want to talk a
1: little bit about that? Yeah. So we, uh, knowing the growth rate in the U S and knowing that we want to maintain the lowest carbon footprint, I hired this brilliant environmental lawyer uh, Dane, Dane's first task was to find a twin spring, which is no easy task at all. Like it's a, it's a unicorn. Right. It's a unicorn. Like find, find this needle in a haystack. Anyways, he found a twin spring that's almost identical to my parents, except that it has three million liters a day artesian, and our family one has a million liters, so it's three times the size in the Shenandoah Valley, Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. And we basically bought it on the spot and built a huge plant away from the spring. And now we've reduced our carbon footprint. We can deliver our water for better economics but also not having to compromise the taste quality or the functional benefits of it. This spring is actually older than even my family's spring. It's the first commercial first commercial production on this spring was in 19, uh, sorry, 1752 from Colonel C. Wright, uh, and it was written up in the Washington Post for its healing quality, its alkaline healing quality. So it's been around for um, centuries and centuries and centuries, Native Indian healing spring. Um, because of the alkalinity, it used to get rid of illnesses. And so uh, we're very fortunate to acquire that spring and commercially develop it. And now it satisfies all of our uh, U.S. expansion. And we have over a billion liters a year, artesian, completely sustain- sustainable, uh, never ground pumped, that, um, that we can actually grow the business to be larger than Fiji. If I look at the packaging, the
0: packaging is obviously very, uh, eco-friendly and sustainable. And you guys even down to the bottle caps are made from uh, cane sugar, right? In terms of the water itself, can you just maybe talk for 30 seconds around the sustainability? Because, you know, I don't know how, how much people or the listeners would know. Uh, but you're not just pumping water out of the ground and leaving a void. Right. I mean, can you just talk about how that renews itself?
1: Yeah, so there's uh, two types of spring water. One that's uh, ground pumped from an aquifer, uh, which means it does not come to the surface of the earth. You have to drill, a, drill it down. And then it, once you drill it down, it won't come out unless you pump it. Uh, artesian springs, which are usually caused by valley situations where water is going down through the surface of the earth, coming from the clouds or the or, or, or other sources... They're going through the ground and then they're going into an aquifer and the pressure pushes the water up and it comes above the surface of the earth. So the surface water is called artesian water and it's excess water only. The aquifer is putting it out because it can't hold anymore. And it's renewed through snow and rain and the natural filtration process of going through the ground and the rocks which are where they pick up the minerals from limestone is what is what picks up flows water so it goes through what limestone and it filters out all the minerals calcium magnesium potassium and then it pushes it back up and uh, we take what comes out only not what co- is down in the aquifer only what's coming up naturally that's an artesian spring and that's why we're 100 sustainable and we're B Corp certified and audited every year on our, uh, our water abstractions all the way through to our Tetra Pak recycling programs.
0: And all of this is, I guess, is one of the reasons that you've gotten a lot of uh, coverage and a lot of fans uh, and, and you start to work with some pretty well-known folks. People, uh, people,
1: man exciting people. <laughs> people that are king in the world with us Thomas
0: well i see i see you people know? like uh, you hanging out with Gwyneth Paltrow and uh, Sean Mendes and others
1: yeah 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 i've i've uh, had the pleasure of meeting all of those fine people most of them are shareholders of the company and they've invested in the company they've invested in myself as the CEO but they've also invested in our mantra and our mission to to grow this company, to be the number one premium water company in the world, and to every pack at a time to display single-use plastic and make the world a better and cleaner place. If you hadn't
0: accomplished what you've accomplished and had to start over with nothing, what
1: would which you do? I've had to do numerous times. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what would you do in the next six? Uh, let me time frame it. What would you do in the next six months, given where things are like right now?
1: Yeah. I really like e-com delivery services. I think the world's changing and retail is awesome, but it's kind of a waste of time. And we're all busy and we wanna we wanna shop for stuff, but we wanna we want it to come to our house. Why bother going to another place? So if I had to start over from scratch, I'd really start to unpack a couple couple of things in online grocery delivery and online product delivery. I think there's a lot of room to have consumers um, have a very fluid experience on getting packages to their house on core essential products that normally you'd have to spend, you know, an hour or two on a Saturday and, and do. And I think there's a lot of disruption. And I think that no one's really uh, nailed a beautiful user experience around that i think we're out that everyone's trying to but like have you seen a beautiful app that says like here's your one-stop shop to like your essential you know your essential goods from discovery all the way through i think there's a lot of room for advancement there and consumers want it like and yeah, it's very rudimentary today right very 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 Instacart's basic it's awesome like it's a game changer but what's the next evolution of instacart like you know, and I think there's a lot of room there. You guys are actually uh, so uh,
0: you're also doing a subscription model with it's lot, awesome right? too. Yeah, you yeah.
1: Spend a lot of time, and we have uh, I think over a hundred thousand subscribers uh, to Flow uh, that get water delivered to their house every week. No, it makes, uh, it, 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 makes it makes a lot awesome. of sense. Right? Who, who wants, wants to lug a a, a a sixteen pound case of water out of a grocery store to your house when you can get it delivered for free? It yeah. it doesn't make any sense. That's why I I think that in the long term there's a lot of chops around delivering products to your house in a seamless way that has a low impact on the environment too. Yeah, I know what we're
0: seeing it, especially now with you know everybody being locked down, it becomes much more part of our daily lives too, right? So having step delivered, right?
1: Yeah, and uh, what, fresh too. We want things that are fresh. I don't want things that are packaged. I want things fresh.
0: No, no, absolutely. Well, that's part of the. I think that's where the opportunity lies. Um, What's the best part of what you do on a day-to-day basis? I
1: get to be in the flow. I get back to you. I get to be in the flow. I'm in the flow. When I'm, uh, when I'm working and doing flow, I'm in the flow. I'm super passionate about it. It's the best part of my day outside of seeing my beautiful wife and daughter. Um, it's the best part of my day. What's, what's the most challenging part? The anticipation of the future, but having to have the common sense of, now,
0: no. I mean, listen. I mean, I know you've been working. I mean, we're we're laughing, but I mean, are you been working like crazy, um, oh, crazy on this, right? Yeah, yeah, no, no. But I mean, I'm sure there's challenges, right? Like everybody else, right? And especially when you're trying to grow a business and uh, yeah, and and also exponentially growing a business hides a lot of problems. Well, hides typically hides a lot of problems when you're growing very quickly too. So you got to be sort of on top of things, right?
1: Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah. But that's the most difficult part, which is seeing the future, but having the common rationality to expand in now, not too fast. Don't prematurely scale. Uh, (laughs) But you have to scale and you have to invest in the future to be able to hit the moment. That's the whole challenge. It's like, um, oh, riding a boat. You can see the horizon, but you got a jib there. You can't just go straight or you'll sink. You know yep. what I mean, like there's a whole science behind building businesses, as, as you know, and you could spend a lot of money on scale and the customers never come or you can have the customers come too fast and have the whole thing crash. Absolutely. That, um, that, that balance, I don't know what you can call that, what the term of that balance is. That balance is the most challenging thing about building a business.
0: When you feel overwhelmed or unfocused, uh, what do you do? overwhelmed and unfocused or do you never i mean sure i mean we're all human right
1: oh yeah yeah for sure i like i like to sit down and cook or have a beautiful meal with a nice glass of rose it pretty much can can ground me no matter where i am in the world okay i'll just throw it out there it's not a magical but like for me it's a magical moment you know I think that that helps. I wish I could say, oh, it's all meditation and all that stuff. But for me, you know, just being able to sit there with some comfortable silence and enjoy a a great cooked meal and appreciate the food uh, and appreciate the drink uh, is definitely something that gets me grounded and focused. Do you do you practice any type of mindfulness techniques or practices? Yeah, I mean, uh, I wouldn't call myself as dedicated as my wife, who goes on silent retreats and is a guru in herself, but I do my part, and I've been studying Buddhism and that for 30 years. Um, those are the only types of books that I tend to read outside of some business books, but um, I know enough, but I'm not dedicated as much to my practice, but I find my flow and being able to empty my mind in different things and different processes. But it's an evolving lifelong journey. Yep. Is what is an unusual habit or absurd thing that you love? I drink rosé a lot. <laughs> That's not not so unusual. But I started <laughs> picking up in the south of France in 2003. <laughs> and I, I've been drinking rosé ever since. So I I love that aspect of it. I don't know what a, another unusual. I I wear white jeans a lot. I like wearing white jeans. I don't know if that's unusual. It's okay as <laughs> I, long I, as I, it's not after September one, right? Or Labor like, Day. A all year round, rose white white jean drinker and dresser. But no. what are the what are the most common misconceptions about you? I'm not as always nice as I appear. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I definitely have an authoritative side to me, um, which sometimes you need in business and other times you don't. Is there something that you believe that uh, people think is insane? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think a lot of what we do in society is insane. Uh, and current, the current environment is a testimony to the insanity that humanity in general has, I think inequality is insane. I think, I think think we're all the same and we should all better ourselves in the world around us. And I think it's insane that people think that we're different, Uh, no matter what our race, color, um, preferences are, uh, who we love, what we do. Uh, we're all entitled to that. Uh, we're all entitled to our own way and we should all be respected for, uh, for all of that. We're all humans. I think that's the biggest insanity in the world. Um, do you have any morning rituals uh i definitely have a morning ritual uh, i get up at six o'clock every morning and uh, i have an alarm clock her name's Romi, and um we play for an hour to an hour and a half i have coffee and with collagen creamer in it and uh cook her breakfast that is my morning ritual i try to i try my best to stay in the moment and give mm-hmm. her my full attention and that's my time with my daughter that's my ritual in the morning any
0: special i mean other than what you put in your coffee do you are you a coffee coffee uh, aficionado <laughs>
1: yeah i like my coffee uh but i also put a Oshawaga mushrooms in the coffee too i like that as well gives okay. you a good energy focus boost for the day and then collagen protein i do not eat breakfast so i intermit, intermittent fast uh so i don't eat past seven o'clock and then i eat again I at uh, one or two in the afternoon. Cool. Yeah,
0: I've I've been trying to do that. It's you can get into the groove of it. It's not too bad once you start. uh, But it's
1: yeah, it can be difficult sometimes to maintain. You know, what's difficult is uh, doing it during the week and then having a normal life on the weekend. So that's what I'm doing now, which is, uh, you know, intermittent fasting, only eating twice a day, nothing consumed after seven o'clock. And nothing consumed, you know, outside of water and coffee uh, until two. But the weekends are, you know, brunch and some booze and some great food and people and family. And then getting back on that train on Monday is a little bit difficult. But I'm working it.
0: Yeah. Well, but actually, I think the uh, the breaking it up is is actually a good thing, right? To have the 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 variance. Yeah. Health wise, I think it's very good. Do you do anything specific in the
1: evening? Do you have an evening routine? I tend to like uh, de-stress after eight. I do one thing that's, uh I feel very important for business. I shut my phone off at eight. I don't turn it back on until the morning. Uh, I don't answer emails. I don't respond to anybody. Um, and I basically chill out, take it down, focus on sleeping, uh, having the best sleep that I can. And uh, that's important. I stopped doing that in 2006 after I got one terrible email that kept me up all night. I said, you know what? I'm not going to answer the email after eight o'clock because I wanted my serenity and focus to be on my sleep pattern and my having a good sleep and enjoying myself versus work. So at that point, I started only working 12 hours a day. So I don't work more than 12 hours a day. I work from eight until eight. And do you do you check your
0: emails first thing in the morning? Do you wait until you sort of settle your? I figure out what you want I to do? I wait.
1: I wait until after my daughter's been fed.
0: Yeah, I know that's a good thing because it can again the same idea, right? It can really set you off if it's. But enough. it's a challenge.
1: It's a challenge. I'm not seeing them 100 on that one. <laughs> but it's a, that's a challenge. To, but I, uh, I'd like to work to not answering any emails or looking at my phone until eight so you have a 12-hour cycle and then you know the next one would be wouldn't it be great not to do anything on the weekend too like just get a digital detox going on and yeah. focus in on what matters i think you know COVID for a lot of us have had a profound experience and it, at a fact and, uh, and and it's not all negative uh, the world's slowed down a little bit uh, we're less pollutive we're more conscious about what we do we're taking time to be with the ones that we love um, we're taking moments to cherish things that normally would have been, you know, oh, don't not even realize, um, that you're engaging with people in a way. So I think, I think that we could all use to just a little less digital noise, a little more connection with the people that we love and the community yeah. and society around us. Yeah, no, no, absolutely agreed. Um,
0: you talked a little bit about, we touched on uh, failure, right? And, and failure being an opportunity to grow and, how failure can uh, show you how to succeed in the future. Um, Is there uh, any specific failure or, uh, or parent failure that set you up for later success? Do you have a favorite? uh, Oh yeah. It's one,
1: it's it's one gigantic one that repeats (laughs) itself over and over again. Uh, I'm dyslexic. Uh, I have obviously been for since day one. This is not something that you uh, you're born with it. Yep. Um, And uh, because of, my dyslexia um i've had to fail over and over again and i've had to work hard to get to the same place that normal people would have had if they had the skill set of phonics i don't have phonics i don't know how to sound out things i don't my mind doesn't work like that so that taught me from an early age that failure was a part of what who i am and so you know, ah, the biggest things happen to me. I'll lose a lot of money at one time, one day, one. It doesn't even phase me. Uh, and it's it's because I I know that the path to recovery is a positive mindset and a positive push forward. When you fail, you got to get up fast. You got to refocus yourself, and you got to get into it. And because I've had to, you know, read the same word over and over and over again and memorize things, uh, even to this date. Um, it's, it's made me a a professional failure. You know, I, I, I'm a pro at failing and I'm, but I'm also a pro at recovery. Uh, I think Michael Jordan said it best is like, it's not how many, um, baskets you get in, it's how many shots you take on the net. Right. Well, that's right. It's persistence. Right. And, and tenacity, right. It's. And I'm, and I'm, and I am persistent and I'm tenacious and I'm slightly ignorant so you know those those three combinations make me the person I am today. You know, it's uh,
0: I think it's hugely important lesson in life. I you know a lot of people give up after the, most people give up after the first failure, right? And there's a lot of people that won't even try because they're worried about failing. Yeah. Right? So so the ability to to fail and fail again and fail again, I think, is is one of the reasons yeah. people succeed. eventually you
1: get it right. Yeah. Eventually you get yeah. it right, and then you become a master.
0: And it's a great video I remember seeing as a little kid, right? Like a little, I don't know, two-year-old or whatever, learning to walk, right? And so you think about it, it, puts things into perspective. A kid doesn't give up on the first try, the second try, the third try, keeps falling down, hits its head, hits its ass, you know, like, <laughs>
1: you <learn that.
0: laughs> right? They don't give up. And eventually, guess what? They walk yeah. after many, 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 many tries. Yeah, it's true. So, and life is no different, right?
1: Yeah, it's true.
0: Are there any uh, quotes you think of, uh, think of often or live
1: by in your life? Yeah, one. It's called, uh, it's a quote from Gandhi and it's called being human first. Uh, This concept of human first is a very deep concept. I think we all, all, we always forget about it. We, we surround ourselves with all of these things, digital, metaphysical, physical thoughts, and constructs of reality that are distraction to the core of why we're here. And it's first to be a human being and to respect and be together with other human beings and to help them and to help you be happy is the core of the essence of being us. And we forget about that. So I remind myself that... Gandhi amongst other spiritual and political and leaders of our world in their time remind us that it's always important for us to think about who we are as a reflection of who your neighbor is uh, and how do we make their life better and how how do we make each other's lives better is, is 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 key to what we do. Then everything else can be layered on top of that. Your ego, your constructs, um your thoughts and your advancements but at the core we have got to learn uh, as a society to be human first
0: yeah well i th- unfortunately you know a lot of progress that uh, we've seen over the last 20 years has been pushed by the wayside in current developments right and it just makes me really sad to see what's going on in the world it's just
1: well of course i'm going to say this because i'm a <laughs> like entrepreneur thomas but uh, no no but every, it's uh... with every with every change and you know, Buddha said it the best is there's no positive or negative in any action. Uh, There's only a force moving it forward. And our reflection of that uh, only comes over time. And it's in, you know, that's why there's no positive or negative to what's going on in the world today. It could be the most positive or negative or neither. But one thing is happening that's the only constant in the entire universe that we know today, which is change. And we just need to embrace it. And embrace the moment of our collective thought to do it. so I feel I feel empathy for everybody that's going through pain in the world and in the United States right now uh, and the world uh, with Covid. But I do believe that we'll have a positive outcome from everything that's happening today, including the health of our planet and our society as a whole.
0: Well, that's that's actually a very good observation. I mean, you think about there's always a positive, there's an ebb and flow, so to speak, right? So, so the fact that we're all locked up and nobody's moving around has had a very positive impact on the environment, as an example.
1: Yeah, right? yeah, and you know, it seems like it's a negative to one person, and then all of a sudden, dolphins are appearing in the in the canals of Venice for the first time in over a hundred years. You know, when people get,
0: um, you know, either killed or being abused, uh, you know, and it's unfortunate, but it. Shines a really big light on the problem right yeah, and, and we're seeing course global protests. Yeah. Worth
1: of change is never, yeah. never clear until the end. And we're not even close. Um, in the last five years, what
0: uh, new belief behavior or habit has most improved your life? Would you say anything that you've done start to do differently? Or have you, have you been a model of consistency?
1: Well, I mean, my daughter changed everything about me as it does with most yeah so like my, I'm, myself you know as an individual changed the minute that we became pregnant and it's just you know that's a different path uh that that's happened in the last five years that totally changed the way that i think and my priorities and how i my different beliefs all evolve around being a parent which is the most yep. powerful thing reproducing yourself and your 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 love your lover and partner is one of the most important things for uh, society at least well it changes your priorities changes too your priorities okay. you know and yeah, yeah. um and, and brings you together and it starts to really level set why you know why why we're here. So that was that was that was the biggest thing that happened in the last five years for me. Um any
0: uh or have any bad recommendations or Or suggestions that you hear from people around entrepreneurism you know somebody wants to be an entrepreneur like yourself right and you know uh, everybody has a uh, habit to chime in and give advice Any, any particularly bad ones or good ones
1: i think the good advice is tenacity and passion is essential i think that's it's just solid advice i mean as an entrepreneur, it, it takes an unwieldy amount of energy to move something forward that doesn't exist in the world. There's roadblocks everywhere, and you just you just gotta plow through them. Like it's just uh, that's the most important advice that I've ever heard or given about being a successful entrepreneur. I've heard there's no there's no bad advice per se, but it's a complex thing. You know, there's no bad advice because everyone has a different opinion of that. But some um, very positive advice is the tenacity and passion that it takes is not to be understated and to be fueled and harnessed at every every chance you can get.
0: Yep. What uh, last question I'll ask you is what are you most optimistic about?
1: I'm optimistic about the world changing in a very positive way. I'm optimistic about the future of mankind moving into uh, an incredibly evolved state with um, technology and bioscience and our evolved conscious thought uh, coming together in singularity is super exciting to me. Ray Kurzweil is a you know, principle of this theory, a singularity, but it is a moment that's happening that will change the course and faith of the entire race for the history to come. And that's, that's pretty exciting for us to witness that intersection in our lifetime, which is our big moment, Thomas. Um, Our big moment in our lifetime is the singularity between technology advancement in, in in medicine and the human thought and body agreed i think that will be the next uh sort of revolution if yeah.
0: you would right i mean if you think about it and it's going to change things dramatically for everybody
1: yeah yeah and i'm excited about that
0: uh, yeah. Hopefully, <laughs> everybody can keep it I'll together <laughs> <laughs> nicholas i thank you again so much for yeah. your uh, uh for your insights and uh Happy to talk to you as always. Yeah, ditto,
1: ditto. It's great
0: to talk. Well, thanks again. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions or suggestions you may have. Uh, you can find me on twitter.com spotter. That's S-P-O-T-R. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to hit that subscribe button. And um, one last thing, if you really wanna help out the podcast, um, the number one thing you can do is leave a five-star review on iTunes, or if you're a Google person on the Google Play Store or wherever you receive your podcast, uh, head on over there and please leave a five-star review. Um, I ask this not because I want the vanity of five-star reviews, but really because it feeds back into the recommendation engines, which then means that the podcast will be recommended to more people. And the more downloads it gets, the better guests I can get on the show. So that really helps out. All right, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening.